Good Good morning, morning, campers. campers. Today's activities will include, oh, you know, just putting on a a fine dining experience for my friends. Lunch today will be the smallest chicken you've ever seen. And to end the night, we will be firing three bullets out of the window into a city for some reason. (laughs) So put on your sunscreen, bug spray, and camp uniform as we dive into... Rope. Rope. Thank you. That was much better than a rolling R than I could manage. That's okay. It, it comes from the glottal stop. Mariska Hargitay, Sarah. Mariska Hargitay, <laughs> Sam. Uh, I am your camp counselor, Sam, an ex-pro wrestler in training and current drag wrestler manager. And I'm camp counselor, Sarah, still trembling from this terrible shock i've been through and we're here to ask is it camp we're diving into popular culture of all kinds to loosely identify what makes something camp we are not here to be the definitive experts on it but rather just talk about this often overlooked and frankly queer subgenre so alfred hitchcock's rope so you chose this for pride month and i get it from like a film studies point of view But do you want to talk a little bit more about why you chose this one? So I chose this for Pride Month because I, I, I believe that when we create art, when we create characters, uh, and especially us as minorities, we, it's important that we have all kinds of media depicting all kinds of experiences right so we talked earlier that you know we had movies about joy and we had movies about love right i also believe that it's important that we have good villains right uh Uh, are you saying normalized gay people being creepy little murderers well okay all right all right all right not saying hey gays go out and be murderers but we can murder too. We can do anything a straight people can do. Uh, anything you can do, I can do better. <laughs> That's the gayest response to that. <laughs> <laughs> I can do any murder better than you. <laughs> no, I really do believe that uh, it's just as important to have great villains as it is heroes. Right. And villains, it's it's really important when we're creating those villains that we understand that their villainy does not come from their difference. Right. Mm. Yeah. So it's it's important that we, you know, uh, you know, I'm evil because I'm gay. No, no, no. It like these dudes are evil because they're fucking white supremacists basically they're they're bad people yes. they have wicked motivations for whatever it is right and mm-hmm. like i've seen this it i see this a lot in wrestling right and i'm going to come back to wrestling mm-hmm. a lot cuz you know it's my oeuvre um but also you know like big archetypes is what you're dealing with here yeah there's always there's always big archetypes but it's important that so in the 90s in wrestling, there was the whole thing about the gay panic, right? Like, oh, that guy's a heel because he's gay and he wants to kiss all of the male 
uh, wrestlers and he, he wants to grope them or something horrible because he's gay. And it's like, oh, God, the sexual panic thing is it's gross. It's ancient and archaic, right? Like and a less nuanced version of beef from Phantom of the Paradise. Yeah. And instead, like, we should be able to have villains who are gay just as much as we have characters who are gay or trans or uh, bi or pan or whatever number of other things. We need all kinds of depictions so that we don't end up in a place again where the minority is the villain because of their minority status. I was reminded there was a sort of movement uh, when the latest Bond movie came out about how um, so many Bond villains have uh, facial disfigurements. And in some points, mm -hmm. even recently, like Javier Bardem's character has a thing with his jaw where he can like take it out and it's treated as like the most disgusting thing about this guy. Where you're like, no, he's... This has nothing to do with his character as a human being. Yeah. I'm not sure why we're saying he's disgusting and he's disfigured and the two are connected. Mm -hmm. I, I want to see a variety of characters, right? We're, we're finally mm -hmm. getting to a place where we have more representation of all these people. But in terms of media, we're still getting bogged down in the same kind of repetitive tropes of characters, right? We've got twinky mm -hmm. gays and we've got bitchy gays and, you know, uh, we've got butch lesbians and, and all, all that kind of stuff. And it's like, no, we've got shades of gray and green and taupe and orange and docker and red and purple. <laughs> and <yellow. laughs> Two songs, two songs off the bat for you guys. So that's why I wanted to choose rope. I thought this would be a really important thing to show. A, we've been around forever. Yeah. <laughs> and B, we can do devious and horrible things as well. Uh, and it's still entertaining, right? It's not a, it's not a, a mark against us for being LGBTQ or whatever minority status. It's just... These two dudes who are definitely sleeping together <laughs> are evil. There, there is never a clarification. I think there's just one bedroom in that apartment, and I think it is supposed to be both of their apartment. Y yeah, I mean, with the time being what it was back then, you know, it's yeah. little hand waving here and there. <laughs> but it slowly dawned on me they only ever say the bedroom. There's a lot of really sly references to the fact that, yeah, they do live together, and boy, oh boy, these bachelors. And they were roommates. Uh, before we get into the background, I want to talk mm -hmm. about the charity I have chosen for this final week of Pride. Thank you. The charity I've chosen is the LGBTQ Freedom Fund, which ties in nicely to the film we're doing today. It's a charity that pays the bail of jailed or detained LGBTQ members or who are about to be deported as well, right? It's not just in terms of just crimes. It's ICE related too because, hey, everyone, fuck ICE. Uh, it also works to address the disproportionately high rate of harm or jailing that LGBTQ individuals in terms of them going to jail, which is a combination of both discrimination against them and poverty-induced problems. Yes. 
few stats that they had on their website. Four in ten trans prisoners are sexually abused. It's horrific, especially when you consider how many places still are putting trans people into the wrong genders jails. Yeah. 50% of homeless youths are LGBTQ, and half of all homeless people experience incarceration. Oh, God. One in... Yeah, these are going to get real sad for a bit. Yeah. One in three adults in the U.S. have a criminal record. And sexual minorities are three times more likely to be incarcerated. Most suicides occur in jail within the first week. And as we know, suicide rates are higher in the LGBTQ community as a whole. Mm -hmm. Black individuals are five times more likely to be incarcerated making black LGBTQ individuals especially susceptibles to being incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, this charity, the LGBTQ Freedom Fund, they work against LGBTQ criminalization, not just by paying bail or mm-hmm. getting people out of deportation centers, because they also pay for that, but they also work by helping to change policy against the community so they're not just helping people get out but they're also working at a local federal you know various levels trying to change the policies that get us into these places things like the various laws being implemented right now in a in a wave of hate Mm -hmm. but thank gods people like this step up and create these kind of charities understanding that while we are the minority quote unquote we are a vocal minority and we work together because we are a community shit like this doesn't fly anymore it's heartening seeing all the people who are actively working against these things it's like mr roger says look for the helpers exactly Yes, yes, that, that's that's exactly it. Uh, you can donate to the LGBTQ Freedom Fund at lgbtqfund.org. Let's help get people out of bad places. Mm-hmm. So, yes, <laughs> away from the dour, uh, unfortunately, of incarceration. Yeah, let's talk about some fictional murders. <laughs> well, before we talk about fictional oh, murders... No. We're going to go into our first true crime kind of thing. I was thinking this as I was watching it the other night. I was like, this is our pivot to a true crime podcast. Our first true crime. I mean, we kind of did a true crime episode with Victor Victoria. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking that the other day with um, the link you sent me about the real life person involved in it. Yeah, Anna Genovese. But... Uh, The difference here is that while she was a mafia boss and perhaps had murders done, uh, this is just a heinous murder. Yeah, there there is no... uh, The whole point of this murder is that you can't really gloss it over. No, no. And I think this really does help inform the film a bit, Mm -hmm. because once you hear like the details you'll start to go oh okay yeah the film while it's fictional it's not hard fictional so this is the leopold and loeb case right yeah leopold and loeb so the knowledge of that name is kind of where my knowledge of it ends that it was a sort of 
ubermensch, let's see if we can do it, and then that's that's all I know. I'm I'm gonna give you the details and okay. thankfully in terms of the actual crime itself, I'm gonna keep that very brief because Thank we you. we don't need super details on that. I will give a warning when we get close to it though. Okay. Okay. So Nathan Leopold Jr. and Richard Loeb were two wealthy students at the University of Chicago who kidnapped and murdered a a 14-year-old Bobby Franks in Chicago in May of 1924. This was at the time dubbed the crime of the century. Everything was dubbed the crime of the century. If you read The Onion, we had The Onion, Our Dumb Century book, and about every five pages is a new crime of the century. If it's early in the century, maybe hold off for a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Crime of the decade, maybe that's something you can call it, for sure. Crime of the year, (laughs) absolutely. I don't think uh, you sold a lot of papers that way, though. (laughs) Crime of the year! (laughs) This that one, sounds like an award. <laughs> this one, this one won't be topped. Come see. Oh shit! A better one happened. The 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 crime was performed in order to demonstrate their quote unquote intellectual superiority, where Leopold and Loeb believed themselves to have committed the perfect crime with no consequences. Spoiler. It's not a perfect crime. The fact that we're talking about them suggests it was not perfect. The thing about the perfect crime is we don't know that it happened. Exactly. It's like uh, they say about spies, you know, the greatest spy is the one that you never know about. Yeah, which is why James Bond is a shit spy. Uh, Leopold was the son of a wealthy German Jewish family who immigrated to the U.S., He was born in 1904, and he was called a child prodigy. By the age of university, he could fluently speak five languages while studying 15, and was an avid ornithologist. Yeah, like, he's he's really smart. The both of them are actually very intelligent. But, Mm -hmm. as in with Dungeons & Dragons, intelligence and wisdom (laughs) are two different stats. (laughs) He completed an undergraduate uh, undergraduate degree at the University of Chicago and was planning to go to Harvard Law. I'll tell you why he didn't go to Harvard Law in a bit. <laughs> He's such a promising young boy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Loeb was born in 1905 to a wealthy family where his father had been a lawyer and the vice president of Sears. Oh, damn, that's money. These two are... Moneyed. Just swimming in it. Loeb was also exceptionally bright. He graduated University of Michigan at the age of 17. Good lord. These guys were born on third base and managed to strike out spectacularly. Uh, He was also training to become a lawyer. Uh Now, the two of them grew up in the same affluent areas as each other. And casually knew each other. Mm-hmm. No, nothing much to speak of in their childhood. But when they both reached university, their relationship grew intensely as they sparked over a shared interest of crime. It's it's the two of them just being like, boy, isn't crime great? Yeah, getting out their 
calipers to measure another skull. Don't you want to go out and do some crimes? We're we're going to the law school. What we should do first is commit as many crimes as possible. Oh, wait until I get to that part. Holy shit. <laughs> They're cavities. No, Two no, cavities. No, no, they are not macavities. <laughs> not, not in just the it just said Elba is a sexual god, but also these two are morons. <laughs> Leopold became interested in Nietzsche's Ubermensch theory. Of course, he did. He once wrote to Loeb that he believed that the two of them were such individuals, and he said. As supermen, we are not liable for anything we may do. Mm-hmm. The rest of us are so many ants beneath their feet. Yeah, laws don't apply to these guys because they're intellectually superior. Ugh, just, like, the amount of eye rolls I did while doing this. <laughs> you have to have some cold conferences on at, as soon as we finish recording. I remember ages ago I asked my friend Kevin, like, if if you could have any superpower, what would it be, right? Because we all, all asked that question. He mm-hmm. said, I want to be able to eye roll so hard that it reverses time and allows me to go and smack the person who's about to do the thing that made me eye roll. <laughs> he wants to have a very, very specific minority report ability. <laughs> but you get to hit so many people for being idiots. <laughs> Yeah, except you look like the asshole because they haven't done it yet. Eh, it's better than Minority it's just Report. It's being violent. <laughs> no, you don't understand. He has this superhuman ability. Watch, watch. Oh, no, it's not working. Hold on. Anyway, the two of them do actually decide to try and do a bunch of crime. They begin with uh... petty... <laughs> they they begin with petty theft I, and vandalism. I, I know that you're you're using this word to sum things up, but the idea of somebody turning to their friend and saying, "Let's do crime," is cracking me up. <laughs> it's you and I. Let's become criminals. <laughs> let's uh, crime it up. Let's get all crimey. Yeah, they 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 pull down their goggles and say, "It's crimin' time." <laughs> Jeez, I hate these two so much. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so they begin with the petty theft and vandalism. But uh, it turns out when nobody paid attention to all the petty theft and vandalism, they moved on to arson. Jesus, that was an escalation. Because they're doing this for the attention, right? They're not... Mm. They say that they're doing it because they believe that they're uh, they're morally superior and they are above man's laws, but they they escalate because they get all like, huh, that's weird. None of the police are showing up at any of the places we crimed in. So they moved up to arson. As, uh, as they bring up, what's the point of being the smartest guy around and committing the perfect crime if nobody is aware that you're the smartest guy around and nobody can appreciate your perfect crime? And that's kind of it, right? Um, they became very disappointed when there was no media coverage so they sat i know i know i know they sat down and to devise the perfect crime to commit in order to confirm that they were supermen and and garner public attention small Mm -hmm. problem boys 
if you commit the perfect crime, there won't be any attention because it's <laughs> perfect. These fucking two. So they spent. These guys needed to just, like, get into the heist game, you know? That would have been a lot more fun. <laughs> but can you imagine, though? They would have been insufferable doing yeah. that, too. Yeah, but, you know, maybe we would have... I mean, we got one good movie out of these guys. But why couldn't we... They just, like, Ocean's Eleven their way across the world. I mean, we know why. Because they're fundamentally bad people who aren't deriving yeah. any enjoyment other than from hurting people. But... <laughs> the two planned the crime for seven months. Not long enough. In order to obfuscate their actions, they decided to demand a ransom from the family with an incredibly complex series of instructions to follow via both typewriter and phone. They decided that their goal was to murder an adolescent using a chisel. Ew. Yeah, they chose Bobby Franks as the victim, as he was the son of a wealthy watch manufacturer, i.e. media attention. Mm-hmm. And he was also Loeb's second cousin, who lived across the street from him. They are so dumb! They're super I'm so- I'm fucking sorry. stupid. Like I say, I've only known this by, like, thumbnail description before... Have these guys never heard anything about how people get caught at crimes? Part of the problem is they keep saying, like, the Superman is above laws. Mm. They're not worried about being caught because they're not worried about any punishment from the other end. That's insane. It, it that almost is insane. feels like a sort of folie a deux situation where... They're just trapped in their own heavenly creatures world together. This very much is a folie de, uh, which for people who don't know is essentially when two people's mental states kind of feed into each other, almost like in a codependent way, but then they commit a series of horrible crimes from it. On May 21st, 1924, they offered Bobby a ride in a car they had rented under a pseudonym as he walked home from school. From what most people have kind of figured out is that Leopold was driving, Loeb was in the back seat, and Bobby was in the front passenger seat. Uh, The reason I say that uh, it it was told this way... Mm -hmm. In terms of Leopold driving, Loeb in the back seat, Bobby in the front seat, is because that's what Leopold said how the crime happened. But Loeb said it was the other way, where he was driving and Leopold was in the back seat to commit the murder. Right? But from what most people have gathered, right, sleuths and blah, 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 um, they figured that Leopold was driving, Loeb was in the back seat. And as they drove, Loeb pulled out the chisel. Now, here's the warning, guys. You can skip forward a bit if you need to. Repeatedly struck Bobby in the back of the head, dragged him in the back seat, gagged him, and he died. Pretty fucking rough. It's it's so upsetting, and it's such a bad murder. This is the worst perfect murder I've ever heard of. If you were making well, a movie he, out of this, you wouldn't believe that these guys were real. It's going to get worse. Oh no! In terms, it, in terms of their stupidity, in terms of the the murder, um, 
it will get a little bit worse, but again. Uh-huh. Okay. So, they drove 25 miles south of Chicago to Wolf Lake. They then removed all of Bobby's clothes, poured acid on his face and genitals to disguise his identity and the fact that he was circumcised. That's about the worst of it. By the time they got back, news was already spreading of Bobby's disappearance. Leopold called Bobby's mother and began the kidnapping ruse, right? Using a pseudonym and saying, you're going to drop this much money in this place, but follow these instructions, blah, 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 blah. The two of them then burned their clothes, cleaned out the car, Mm -hmm. and spent the rest of the night playing cards. Now, here's... What a lousy way to spend the night. (laughs) Uh, I know. It's, It's about to start getting stupid stupider it's gonna start getting stupid okay so the idea of the ransom was that they were going to spend a few days running the cops and the parents and everybody in circles so that they don't find the body yeah letting the trail get cold they found the body basically immediately (laughs) so You, you have to laugh i'm not laughing at what happened to this person you have to laugh because the body reacts in weird ways. Yeah, they found the body basically immediately. So the ransom thing was immediately dropped by everyone. Mm-hmm. The police launched a massive investigation. Loeb went about his life as normal. But can you guess what Leopold did? Did he get really fucking nervous and start acting weird? Oh, no. He got real fucking superior about himself again thinking he's done the perfect crime so he kept talking to the police oh my god (laughs) he even said at one point (laughs) to the cops if i were to murder anybody it would be just such a cocky little son of a bitch as bobby franks oh my god (laughs) i know now gets better in the area where they found bobby's body cops found Mm -hmm. a pair of glasses near the body now glasses weren't glasses weren't especially uncommon but the hinge on these glasses were specially crafted for only three people in all of chicago (laughs) guess who one of those people was you might as well drop your ID. It would have been harder to find you. Oh my god. It, so, it, they're Leopold's glasses. Because mm-hmm. he's a moron. Yeah. Uh, they were brought in for questioning. And they gave the alibi that they had picked up two ladies the night of the murder and had driven around, but dropped them off late at night without getting their names. You wouldn't know them. They go to a school in Canada. Yeah, basically. They were just like, oh, yeah, you know, we had a great night, you know, riding around and enjoying these ladies. We sure do like ladies. Um, Enjoying carnal attention from female humans. Here's the great thing. This alibi was proven false by Leopold's chauffeur, who had been repairing Leopold's car that night. Guys, come on! This was corroborated by the chauffeur's wife, who had seen him repairing it all night. I have seen six-year-olds steal cookies and come up with better alibis. 
this is not the perfect murder. This is the furthest <laughs> thing from the perfect murder. I'm I'm kind of mad at the press for blowing up Leopold and Loeb to the point that I know their names a hundred years later. Because these guys did not deserve a single minute of this press. Loeb confessed first, claiming Leopold had orchestrated the whole thing and killed Bobby. Leopold confessed immediately after, saying the opposite, of course. Prisoner's Dilemma, guys. You are rookies at this. Intellectually superior, my ass. <laughs> Let me draw out a quick logic square for you fellas. Finally, when they were arrested and whatnot, uh, Leopold admitted he did it in part to see what it would feel like to be a murderer. But that he was disappointed that he felt no difference. Points for honesty, I guess? What an absolute piece of shit human being. The trial ran for 32 days, and in the end, they were both found guilty and sentenced to life in prison for murder, and then an additional 99 years for kidnapping. Good. It's like Larry Nassar. Larry Nassar's technically supposed to be in jail for, like, the next millennium. I mean, at least some justice was served, hooray. In January of 1936, five years after being incarcerated... Loeb was attacked by another inmate and died shortly after in the prison hospital. Eh, he wanted to see what it would feel like to murder someone. Leopold, however, was paroled in 1958. Benefits of being a rich white man, I guess. And died of a diabetes-related heart attack in 1971. You've got to be kidding me! And, uh, so they're dead and rotting in the ground, and, uh... I'm sure nobody mourned either of their passing because they were A, horrible murderers, and B, absolute idiots. I I blame their names for being so catchy in the alliteration. Leopold and Loeb always sounded to me kind of like Gilbert and Sullivan or Ringling Brothers. That's what I was thinking. Bailey. <laughs> or, <laughs> it sounds like a circus act. R- Rogers and Hammerstein. Yeah. Or, um... Siegfried and Roy is the one I was trying to remember. Just a little bit based on... This was turned initially into a stage play in 1929, which was then turned into the film that we're watching today. This is also the basis for Compulsion. The entire third season of the series, The Sinner. An episode of Matlock. An episode of Columbo. An episode of Murdoch Mysteries. (laughs) That's a twist for Murdoch Mysteries. Murdoch Mysteries is for those who think Babar is too (laughs) fast-paced. I've never seen Murdoch Mysteries. I think I watched it once and I was like, this is is what people point at when they say Canadian TV is bad. Yeah, that's unfortunate. One of the guys I wrestled with was just in an episode. Oh, good for him. He's a black cowboy. Good for him. Uh, so Murdoch Mysteries it also was uh, the sort of basis for the film's funny games Murder by Numbers Uh, never 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 watch funny games it's the most disturbing Uh, movie I've ever seen I watched the American version um, and it it's a great great movie that I cannot recommend anyone ever watch absolutely fair Absolutely fair. I've never seen it, but I know enough about it just to be like, uh, you know what? I don't want the rest of my week ruined. Thank you. 
No, I walked into it going like, this movie's supposed to make you feel things and get real weird. And uh, I recommended it to my best friend, Melissa, and we watched it and I'm still guilty about it <laughs> because we were we were standing there shell-shocked by the end. Your thousand-mile stare after the end of that film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was also the basis for Murder by Numbers, the Sandra Bullock-Ryan Gosling film. Yeah, that's the one I was thinking of. I hadn't thought of that movie in years. I remember there was, like, a baboon or something in it. I remember at one point one of the guys tells the other that if you choke him to death, they can take fingerprints off your neck, and I've always wondered if that was true. It's probably not. It it is, yeah. Okay. You, You can leave fingerprints on basically anything. Yeah, I'm saying you can leave fingerprints. I'm just not sure that they can take a good impression of them. Oh, hmm. I don't know. Uh, Any, not murderers, but murder-solving people out there, let us know, please. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's important. It's for my research. Yeah. Uh, It also became the basis for the off-Broadway musical called Thrill Me, the Leopold and Loeb story. Oof. There's probably a reason why we've never heard of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Assassins is a hard sell, and that's Sondheim. That's it for me. That's it for the background of uh, the, this Alfred Hitchcock film, Rope, which has surpri- surprisingly smarter criminals in it. Were the real Leopold and Loeb actually gay? Ah, okay, good question. This is conjecture back and forth, right? It's the, it, it's the, okay, these two were very close in university, you know, and they would have been in men's dorm and whatnot. There are some sources that claim, yes, they had a very intimate connection and other sources that are like, no, nah, we think you're just blowing that out of proportion. And this is the problem with history is up until recently, historians, a lot of them loved to uh, straight wash history of oh these two gladiators found together they're just real good friends yes but then you also get into later years of the 20th century where it's like homosexuality is mental illness and so is criminality and the two become inextricably linked in a lot of people's minds yes very much so so, so violence it, has to be connected to sexual perversion. Yeah, and so this idea of whether Leopold and Loeb were gay lovers or if they were just, if they weren't, it's it's kind of hard. Well, in the time that I took to research it, it was inconclusive. I'm sure there's other people who mm-hmm. have very specific opinions either way, but um, they're both dead and they're, they were both Bad at being murderers, so... (laughs) (laughs) This movie is much better than The Murder. Much better. Much better. Classier. Uh, So, as for the movie itself, so we start out by looking over a street. I started by writing down all of the cuts, and then each time I watch this, I just get sucked into the movie, and my writing down of where the cuts are just fades out near the end. Uh, So we start out by looking over a street... In the sunshine. In case this is your first episode, uh, we should probably jump in and say about the cuts right now. Mm, Yes. Uh, So the whole concept of this movie is it's 
supposed to be a single, unbroken shot, much like the piece of rope itself. Um, it's really not. A bunch of the cuts are hidden. I think they only could fit, like, eight minutes of uh, film in at a time. Is that right? No idea. It was something like that, like eight to 11 minutes or something like that, which is also partly why the movie's shorter, um, but also why it's such a great um, choice to adapt a play like this where there are naturally no cuts. But yeah, that's the idea. Every once in a while, they'll like zoom into the back of somebody's coat. That's the most common way. And then they zoom out again, and obviously it's another shot. But you can sort of treat it as though the scene was unbroken. So we start by looking over a street, which is where the cameo is, because I watched this the first time, did not even think to spot the cameo, and you reminded me that there has to be one. There's, so there's always, I I say always, there's generally in Alfred Hitchcock films, a quote-unquote Alfred Hitchcock cameo, where he's hidden his silhouette, or he actively is in the shot, or it's a photograph of him, yada, yada, yada. In Psycho, he's getting onto a bus. That's the most famous one, I think. Mm-hmm. Do you know what the one in Lifeboat is? Because that's even harder than Rope, because the whole thing takes place in a lifeboat. Uh, the Lifeboat one is in a magazine or a book. It's supposed to be for uh, a, an advertisement for weight loss pills. Yeah, and he's the before picture. This is where we get our cameo. He's walking along on the street outside. Then we pivot to an apartment with the shades drawn. Suddenly we hear a yell and we cut to David being strangled with a rope by Philip, who's played by Farley Granger, and Brandon, played by John Dahl. These guys are great. This movie is so good, particularly Farley Granger. I could not get over the fact that his name was Brandon. Is it because it feels too modern? It sounds way too modern. Even though I know, logically, yes, it's, I believe it's a Welsh name. Or a Celtic name in general. <laughs> yeah. Something uh, Anglo-Saxony. Uh, yeah. Or pre or post or who knows. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, just Brandon. I was like, <laughs> what is he, a 13-year-old? Yeah, Brandon, uh, it's not mentioned, but you should always picture Brandon skateboarding at all times throughout this movie. Such a smug piece of shit, too. I I think he's great. I was trying to think about, like, if you were in a play of this, which one would be more fun? Because Brandon gets to be the asshole and show off, while um, Philip... Farley Granger is the one who gets to do like your classical acting of I'm insane. I'm falling to pieces. Both would be pretty fun. Mm-hmm. Farley Granger was also bugging me throughout. Cause I was like, he looks like somebody modern. I can't figure out who it is. And I finally realized he looks like a, like a super handsome Topher Grace. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally see that super handsome Topher Grace. But if you ever get confused, just remember that Farley Granger plays Philip, who is the nervous one, and John Dahl plays Brandon, who is the asshole. Uh, So Philip is immediately very, very upset after this murder, but Brandon's completely calm. He lights a cigarette, he opens the window, he draws the shades, and they start to clean up. And Brandon comments on wanting to save the glass that David had his last drink out of. Quote, the Davids of this world only occupy space which makes him the perfect victim 
for the perfect murder. Now, just a quick aside, they they have strangled Brandon with a piece of rope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know anything about strangulation deaths? Um, no, no, not really. I know that when you get hanged, you hope that your neck breaks so that you don't have one. Yeah, that's that's part of it. Strangulation deaths are very difficult because it can take at least two minutes for it to properly happen. Jesus. So. Oh yeah, that's like the rule of three. Like three minutes without oxygen, three days without water, three weeks without food is how long you can survive with each. For a strangulation death, there's a lot of things saying like generally if somebody is strangled to death they're not strangled from the front they'd be strangled from behind because you Mm -hmm. don't want to have to look at the person for two three four minutes while you do it yeah it's also very difficult for like a premeditated strangulation for a lot of people because Mm -hmm. emotionally it's too much yeah, if you if you want to kill somebody quickly, you want it to be like one and done, right? Like yeah, shoot like, them or stab them or whatever. Don't stare lovingly into their eyes for the length of a song. Right? And because you may chicken out halfway through, right? Shooting someone, stabbing yeah. someone, it's instant, it's done. But strangling yeah. them, you really have to have the forethought of I I'm going to be sitting on top of this person choking the life out of them for who knows how long and they might fight back so guys (laughs) don't strangle anyone (laughs) it's a bad idea yeah don't don't strangle anyone in general i think we can say is the policy of this podcast (laughs) but especially just don't strangle anyone yeah (laughs) is it camp colon don't don't strangle anyone (laughs) (laughs) that's our motto if you take one thing away from us i don't know it it kind of feels like the lady doth protest too much like that what was the name of that podcast i used to listen to that always told me not to strangle people and also it might have been gay but they didn't talk about it as much (laughs) citizen kane it was citizen kane citizen kane it's citizen kane (laughs) They put the corpse in a tall trunk. So the idea, I guess, if it's a um, if it's a play, it's like right center stage. You're looking at it the entire time. I also have to think of this as a play. They not they do not have an actor in that that a show being murdered because if that's an acting job, it's the worst in the world. You just have to lie there for the rest of the play. Yeah, it's uh. It would be an ordeal. Well, I'm hold on. It, I'm sure in the play, if they did have an actual actor and they put him into the box, the box would just have like a trap door at the bottom that he could sneak out from, right? And not have to sit in yeah. there for the rest of the play, hopefully. Hey, hey, Sam, are you saying there's a secret bottom in this movie? It's not my best work. <laughs> So Philip says he's always been scared of Brandon the whole time that they've uh, known each other, but then immediately takes it back and says he just isn't dealing with the murder well. Brandon is a socially anxious gay, and I kind of start to love him here. What I... Wh- I'm sorry, Brandon isn't the socially anxious one. Philip is. Okay. What I, what I really enjoy about the film as well is if you chop off the beginning part of this movie... 
where they where they talk about the murder and they commit the murder and hide the body. You just excised it entirely. The rest of the movie, you could live off the innuendos of, oh, these two are fucking, and they want no one to know. Yeah, I was trying to see if I could just watch this movie on YouTube, and then I found that video that I sent you, and that I'll probably put in the show notes, that is just the innuendos of rope, which is basically that. If you remove the (laughs) reference to the murder, it just sounds like they're talking about sex the whole time. Constantly. So speaking of which, our boys share a champagne toast committing the perfect murder. And meanwhile, they talk about how they felt. Brandon says he barely remembers anything except how wonderful and exhilarated he felt at the end. And then David's body went limp. Innuendo. Guys, it sounds just like something else. If you want a drinking game for this movie, anytime you think it's an innuendo for the two of them having sex, take a drink. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So they start to prepare for dinner and Brandon gets the idea of, okay, so the dining room table is all set up, but wouldn't it be hilarious if instead we took all of the dining room table stuff and we set up dinner on the trunk? We put a little, um, uh, what's it called? Little candelabras? It's um, the fabric you put on a table. Tablecloth. No, tablecloth. <laughs> the cloth on the table? <laughs> it's a tablecloth. They put a tablecloth on the trunk that David's body is in, and they and they set up candlesticks, and they bring the food over, and they're like, why don't we just serve the food off of this? Uh, Brandon is what the French call le joker. <laughs> and then we get our first cut into the back of Brandon's coat. This movie, I think, is really brilliant in terms of what Hitchcock is able to achieve with just camera movement, right? We're so used to shot, reverse shot in film to convey a conversation more easily and, you know, having focal characters and stuff. And instead, we just get these lovely sweeping motions that the camera does all over the place. So when he does go in for a cut, he'll sweep into something that actually makes sense to focus into. If you guys know the term like cheating out in theater, right? It's one of the first things that you learn that you learn that you're always sort of facing the audience more than you would be. Um, so in this movie, you know, people occasionally ignore that rule and turn their back to the camera, which just feels weird because you never see it on screen. Yeah, yeah. Somehow it makes this... Because what's going to happen over the course of the film is that a lot of people are going to have a lot of conversations about nothing. And you'll hear part of it, and then they'll walk away. And you're like, but... Weren't those the characters only for the camera to get closer to another person and focus on that conversation instead? So people turning away from the camera and not cheating, like you said, out to the audience makes perfect sense because the camera is just this unseen spectator moving from conversation to conversation. It feels like such a wonderfully modern thing to do, like something that you'd see in a mumblecore type movie, but... Instead, it makes us feel like we're just a part of this party. We ourselves are moving from conversation to conversation, just like you would at a party. Mm-hmm. It's, it's beautifully done. Honestly, you could ignore the whole trying to keep it as one uh, continuous shot and just think this, is a, this feels like a great way to shoot a party. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so the first person to arrive is Kenneth, who is David's best friend. Uh, and he um, has, it feels like recently, relatively recently, broken up with Janet, who's the next to arrive. And she is David's current girlfriend. And they seem to be like, if not engaged, they're going to get engaged very soon. No, no. Wasn't the first person to arrive their maid? Oh, yes, yes. Sorry. No, no, that's I okay. That's a paragraph. That's all right. Yes. Uh, Philip discovered the rope hanging out of the side of the trunk and freaks out, completely unable to remove it. And Brandon says, listen, I can't believe you can't do this. The only crime we can truly commit is to be ordinary. <sighs> you know what? I I'm sick of these two already. The actors can stay. The actors are great, but man, are these guys awful! Yeah, it's any any of this Ubermensch stuff is always real troubling because it's just like, oh, like you guys are starting off with intellectual superiority, but then that quickly starts to go into places of racism and all kinds of other bigotry. So, yeah. um, excuse me while I dislike all of you. <laughs> Yeah, their housekeeper arrives. She's completely clueless. They sent her out for several hours to help prepare for this. Um, she's sort of focused on her own thing, is her general vibe. She just wants this party to go well. She's she's a nice little old lady. Although, again, like, this is 1948 this film came out? I believe so. And uh, so she could have been a sprightly 32, for all we know. <laughs> I saw a thing that the first year of Cheers, Norm and Cliff were our age. Shut one up! One was 34, one was 35. I know! No! Now, I know they all smoked back then, but that's insane. No, that's not possible. It is. It is. Sam was also 35. And oh. Shelby Long was only 33. I feel awful right now. <laughs> Rhea Perlman was 34. <laughs> I'm so glad we got rid of all the lead in the water. <laughs> uh, I'm just glad I don't have to worry about it because my skin is so moisturized and unlined. Uh, so then we get Kenneth arriving along with Janet. So... Uh, Kenneth is David's best friend, Janet is David's current girlfriend, and Kenneth's ex-girlfriend. They have sort of a love triangle there, and it seems to suggest that it hasn't been very long since their breakup, because they don't seem very comfortable being around each other, and they're both mad that Brandon brought them to the same place. I love Janet. <laughs> She's <laughs> Janet is so good. I I was thinking, you know, there's no Hitchcock blonde in this. And when you take out the Hitchcock blonde, uh, all of these female characters actually get to be really fun. <laughs> she is a spitfire. She calls everyone chum. <laughs> She's gorgeous, <laughs> too. She's insanely gorgeous. Oh, my God. And she arrives in this dress that I'm like, you showed up to a dinner party looking like this this isn't the met gala bitch 
It's like red velvet and it's got like embroidery and these big puff sleeves and everything. Oh. She stunning. feels like she feels like she fell in from a 30s movie. Like she's supposed to be a spunky lady reporter. Yeah, she's just she's she's got big Lois Lane energy. Yes, yes. She's always game for a laugh, you know? Yeah, she doesn't take shit from anyone to the point of like later on she pulls Brandon away just to say like oh yeah yeah come show me this picture that you have here in the hall and he goes what picture and she goes this one you motherfucker <laughs> what the fuck do you think you're doing inviting my ex here you know we don't get along she's great yes no no shit actually Brooke. she and Kenneth might be the best people out of this whole group as we'll see later Oh, yeah, I've got zero care for the ant. Uh, so then Mr. Kentley, who's David's father, again, David, is in the trunk currently. Mr. Kentley arrives along with David's aunt, Mrs. Atwater. So they, he was supposed to come his, with his wife. His wife's sick. So he brought his um, sister-in-law along, Mrs. Atwater. Mrs. Atwater is um, English and kind of brassy and thinks that she can tell the future. She feels... I I enjoy her. I feel kind of bad for how this character gets treated by everyone around her, though. Like, I enjoyed the fuddy-duddy nature of her, but it was... Mm -hmm. there, there was something bordering on that just, like, compliant maliciousness. Like, she's a little bit eccentric mm -hmm. in an acceptable way. You know, oh, she loves horoscopes. She's, she's your dotty aunt. Yeah. Yeah, but... She would occasionally say something that definitely had barbs in it of that very like, oh, we certainly don't do things that way back home. Yeah, these people are all very clearly, other than the housekeeper, who everyone is occasionally kind of bitchy to. Everybody yeah, is very wasps. upper class. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Except Ooh. I would argue uh, Mr. Kentley is... Uh, I think kind of Jewish coded, especially later on. Okay, fair. Uh, so everybody comments because David's supposed to be there and David's late. Why? David's never late. Whatever could be keeping him. That sort of thing. The other thing is that David and Kenneth kind of look alike, apparently, which means when Mrs. Atwater sees Kenneth, she goes, oh, there's my nephew David. And this upsets Philip so much that he breaks the glass in his hand. Oh, yeah. It's... Uh... It's a real good acting moment, right? It's all body language. Mm -hmm. Everyone has drinks and chats with each other, and Mrs. Atwater reads Philip's palm and says that his hands will make him famous. Uh, like Ooh. you said, this is just a bunch of basically normal conversations that are only heightened by the fact that, you know, there's a dead body sitting in front of them all. Yeah, I right. imagine that if you saw this play as is, this part would feel pretty slow without it. It's it's the constant tension of at any moment, Philip could break, or somebody could open the chest, or something could happen that the body. It, you know that the body will be discovered. It's just by who. Yes, I was and about when. to say this is the classic Hitchcock. Uh, definition of suspense, right? 
a bomb goes off, boom, you didn't know it was there. That's not thrilling. But if you say there is a bomb under the kitchen table and nobody knows when it's going to go off, that's suspense. Mm-hmm. So the audience, the the reason that we're we're hanging on every word is because Brandon kind of won't shut the fuck up about the fact that he's murdered someone. Yeah. But, he's always like, like dropping innuendos and not just gay ones, murder ones as well. Yeah. Mur- like I wouldn't mur- be surprised if suddenly Kenneth has a much better chance with Janet. Yes. That's an excellent example. Uh, one of the things is that uh, Philip is a piano player and he actually has a, like a big gig showing up. This is why after the dinner party, they say they're going out to Connecticut to one of their moms has a farm out there. And this is so Philip can practice for this big city hall gig that he has, which is also part of why Mrs. Atwater says, you know, oh, your hands will make you famous. And this is such a great reveal. It feels like we're about a third of the way into the movie because Philip sits down at the piano and he starts playing and the camera slowly starts to pull back. And there's Jimmy Stewart. He's been standing in the doorway. Oh, it's so good. I love Jimmy Stewart. I love him so much. He's so good in this. Even in his creepy Hitchcock stuff, I love him so much. James, James Stewart. I'm surprised we haven't done a James Stewart impression yet. <laughs> right? J- Jimmy Stewart. You've heard my James Stewart impression. D- do it. It is notably sounding nothing like him. <laughs> it's it's James Stewart by way of Liza Minnelli. Yeah, my James Stewart impression sounds like a Liza Minnelli doing a James Stewart impression. The star of the film, essentially, um, mm-hmm. although that's arguable from our perspective, the the top build actor then let's say yeah. doesn't show up until 30 minutes into this movie it feels so ballsy that's why i mean but then again hitchcock is the guy who killed off the main character in the first 20 minutes of psycho yeah exactly exactly and then just switches protagonists and carries on like nothing happened it's such a great role too in terms of writing you got to think even as a play, you got to keep your sort of powerhouse to show up like this. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Now, here's the thing that went through my brain after, I don't know, should I, should I talk about this now or do I wait until, you know, I'll wait until the end until I drop my observation about James Stewart in this film. Okay. Okay. Um, I will point out, too, that they've been mentioning for a while, just like how David isn't there yet. Everybody's been talking about Rupert. Rupert. When's Rupert coming? This is James Stewart. He used to be the boys. Um, he was their headmaster or their housemaster or something like that. He used to be their teacher. It's a very intimate connection. This isn't like teachers and students nowadays. This is no. private school, moneyed families. You know, their teacher was who they consider their master, right? They they refer to him as master. Because that was the there kind is of... talk of sitting at his knee. Yes, and so you can read into this a little bit further that perhaps these young men have all had sexual relations, perhaps with James Stewart. Yeah, that's the thing. David and um, Kenneth and Philip and Brandon and Rupert are all this like 
pentagram together where you can draw the line yeah. however you want to and the and the story kind of supports that whichever way you choose to interpret it yeah because there's there's very i, I don't know if it's just from philip but philip definitely gets more physically agitated when james stewart is near and that could be in part of i don't want you to discover the body but it could also be in part of i've known you intimately and i'm a murderer and, and if we want to talk about the gay subtext of the film again there's something that this person knows very well about me and i'm trying to hide but he can see it on my face yep yep uh, so everybody shows up, they start to eat, uh, there is a tiny amount of food, I guess because, like, they have to put it all on this tiny, tiny trunk, um, but honestly, it looks like a tiny amount of food for what's supposed to be eight people. The chicken, I swear, it's not even a chicken, it looks like, like, like a, a game hen or something Pigeon. like that. I know chickens <laughs> used to be smaller, but I, all I can think of is, this is a terrible dinner party, besides the murder. Well, you also got to think that uh, how many takes did they have to do during these scenes where they're eating? How much food can they mm -hmm. consume? If we keep the portions as small as fucking possible on those plates, then yeah. hopefully we won't have... If we end up doing 40 takes of this scene, mm -hmm. maybe we won't have eaten that much. So Janet starts to make up a plate for Philip, and Philip says, no, I don't want any chicken. And everybody is shocked. shocked. Why? Who doesn't eat chicken? Until they find out... The word choking is never used in the film. They always say, like, strangled or rang the neck of. But he used to have a job killing chickens by choking the chicken. <laughs> Yeah, here's another innuendo, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Out in Connecticut, where boys can be boys, uh, he would regularly choke the chicken. And one time mm -hmm. he didn't do a good enough job, and a mm -hmm. chicken came back to life like Lazarus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Suddenly the life force came out of the chicken that he had choked. <laughs> I can't believe they got away with this, honest to God. I, I don't know, right? Because it's just like... Yeah, I, I would think that there's people back then who were just sitting there going like, Ah, oh, look at this fine murder movie. There's absolutely <laughs> no subtext here whatsoever. This is this is like the equivalent of those YouTube videos where every time they say Roxanne, the song speeds up. Except every time... <laughs> It gets gayer. Philip gets visibly worse. <laughs> Philip uh, is, again, much like Leopold and Loeb, fucking terrible at this. Because, you know, Brandon's telling this story in sort of like his Brandon way, which is a charming asshole, like embellishing and things like that. And Philip says, no! No, it never happened. How could you dare say such a thing? Even though James Stewart previously has also made reference to this. Like, everybody at this table knows that this was a thing that Philip used to do. Or, like, it's his responsibility on the farm or whatever. This is not a shock to them. But instead, he just starts telling these blatant lies about how he's never killed a chicken in his life. 
it's it so feels that Lady Macbeth, the lady doth protest too much, but we're talking mm, on yeah. so many levels of innuendo. This is the innuendo of Dorian Gray. <laughs> <laughs> Every innuendo just makes him visibly more and more uncomfortable. And it's just... <laughs> yeah, by the end of this, it looks like Farley Granger has sweated through his coat jacket. Uh, so Rupert starts a discussion about how murder isn't really that bad and it's a good solution for population control and that sort of thing. And you get the idea it's the sort of thing he says all the time. He's very charming about it. Hey guys, this is some white supremacist bullshit. But that's the thing. He's so charming at this that you think, like, as an impressionable student, it would be very easy to be caught up in his sway. You know, he's joking to Mrs. Atwater about, oh, wouldn't it be great if you could get rid of annoying people like head waiters who won't let you in? And, you know, if you could knock off a few people whenever you wanted, you could always get the best Broadway tickets and things like that. So it's the purge. And, you know, he's... <laughs> yes, he literally says... It doesn't have to be all the time, you know, that would be ridiculous. We could just restore it, we could just keep it down to one week, or one day. The Purge! And I think it's great, because it sort of shows you not only how Brandon and Philip got caught up in it, but also it, uh, it's weirdly, I think, like, the most relaxing part of the movie. Because even though they're outright talking about murder... Uh, I enjoy this conversation and this back and forth so much that I'm not thinking about the body right right now. I know. There's just this... There's this um, weird thing that James Stewart does in this scene where, yeah, like you said, he is very charming when he starts off. And he's joking around with the ant and, you know, oh, how jovial, oh, you know, aren't I funny for suggesting that we should just murder people? And then he... Yeah, he, he's a great flirt in this with the, with the women. Yeah, yeah, it, it's flirty and it's funny. And you go like, oh, yeah, like, he can't possibly mean it. But the second he's challenged on it, all of a sudden he goes, I'm not fucking joking here. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, not only this, but that it's an art. It's just like how it's not going to happen all the time. But it's an art one should that should remain in the exclusive domain of those superior enough to know how and when it should be utilized. So, you know, if you are using it to just bump off an annoying head waiter, that's fine. But only if you're the right type of person. It's scary, right? He he becomes this scary character for a bit. And Mr. Kentley, who this is where I would argue he's kind of Jewish coded, uh, points out, no, um, I actually don't find this charming dinner party conversation. I think that what all of you are joking about is horrific. And this is exactly what the Nazis did. Which a reminder, this is not even five years after the war. Yes. Yes. It's very close after the war. 
But Brandon's counter is that Hitler wasn't a really proper Nietzschean Ubermensch, and neither were any of his followers. Um, so yeah, they thought they were, and that's why they thought they were justified. But in fact, they were too stupid to realize that they weren't smart enough. Which really just proves Mr. Kentley's point of asking, well, who's actually smart enough to be this Ubermensch? Who's actually smart enough to decide, I am the person who gets to make these decisions? It's a perfect situation if you don't account for the fact that you're talking about humans. Uh, so Kentley is offended and he leaves the room to go look at the antique books in the dining room, the books that were ostensibly at least the reason for him coming over. So after this and everybody's trying to cool down a little bit, uh, Rupert kind of leans into Brandon and basically goes like, hey dude, you planning a murder by any chance? Sure seems like you're planning a murder. <laughs> Basically, everybody goes to look at the books at this point, and uh, Brandon manipulates Janet and Kenneth to be left alone together, with some romantic mood music playing to push them together. Ugh. Except it seems like, stealthily, Kenneth and Janet might be the smartest people in this play. Because they talk to each other honestly. They're like, huh, it's weird that Brandon keeps pushing us together. And they have what seems to be like a real clearing of the air between them after their breakup. On Brandon's part, this is part of the joke. This is part of the, like, I've hidden the body in the chest. And I, and, you know, now we're having dinner on top of the body that I killed. And, oh, I feel so great doing this. Aren't I the smartest man in the world? Oh, what if I, what if I got... David's fiance to fall back in love with her ex-boyfriend because he's dead. He's not using her anymore. Oh, aren't I the smartest man in the world? Furious masturbation motions. <laughs> and that's the thing, too. He's, he sees himself as the chess master of this situation. Meanwhile, literally the first thing that um, Kenneth and Janet will say to each other when the, he puts them together is like, Huh, it's weird that Brandon's putting us together and thinks that we don't notice, huh? God. But instead, they're just honest with each other. They talk about their relationship with each other. They talk about their relationship with David. They both say, hey, it's really weird that David's still not here and that Brandon is still trying to manipulate us. Yeah, again, coming back to intelligence versus wisdom. You know, Brandon ha may have a lot of intelligence, but uh, these two have a lot of wisdom going on mm -hmm. again it's just a reiteration of how terrible this dinner party is because james stewart comes in with the uh, with some ice cream and he's like huh i'm the only one who seems to want to eat any dessert uh would you like some mrs wilson literally nobody else is having a good time here and she's like sure let me have some ice cream while i tell you about how suspicious the boys were earlier today <laughs> it's things like oh he had me run some errands and told me to be gone for several hours while they were here alone together. At this point, uh, Philip comes over. He is the worst for wear for several drinks. And he says, look, Mrs. Wilson, everybody had a great time. Nobody wanted to eat off your stupid dining room table. Why don't you go be a servant like you're supposed to? Ugh. Uh, so this is when he starts playing the piano again, and Rupert starts to casually question him about David, but he just gets more and more nervous. This is one of the great touches, because it's this, this set, um, there are these huge windows looking over a cityscape in the back. And so 
as the movie progresses, it starts in like the late afternoon and it slowly gets darker and darker and darker. So it's around this point that James Stewart goes to turn on a lamp and you start to notice, oh, like literally every time the camera moves away from these windows, they've clearly been doing insane work to change things up. This is so impressive. Mm-hmm. I, it, it, it's so subtle. You don't get to really notice it. But again, just masterful like understanding of your sets, your camera angles, the storytelling, giving just so much time to be able to change things around. When I think about how much this camera moves around and how the lighting never feels off, I am just amazed. I don't know if there's people moving around, holding, um, what do you call those big white things that like reflect the light? You know what I mean? The big white things? Yeah, yeah. You hold up like a big sheet of silk or something like that. Maybe they're called a silk. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) You have a light, right? And then the light bounces off the fabric. And then the light from the fabric bounces onto the person. And it makes it more diffuse, you know? More. Oh, maybe it's just like a diffuser or something. I'd have to to ask my mom. She's a photographer, so. There we go. Yeah. yeah, they taught me three-point lighting in high school, but even though I'm only 19 years old and have great skin, I just don't remember it anymore. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it imagine? really just draws attention to it. Because <laughs> James Stewart turns on the lamp and Philip immediately goes, no, no, how about you turn that lamp off? I'm doing perfectly fine. How about you? <laughs> uh, and Mrs. Kentley calls... David's mom and it's implied that she's already like kind of a nervous person but she says hey David isn't at home either and everybody gets so upset by this that the party's kind of over at this point everybody's like we're not having a good time our hosts are complete assholes let's just go home and figure out what happened to David yeah the party only lasted like 45 minutes yeah, this is a terrible part. Like, even if it was just drinks or just dinner, this is a terrible party. This is a real bad party. Um, but Mr. Kentley re-enters, holding a pile of antique books that Brandon gave him, all wrapped up in the rope they used to murder his son. And honestly, it's like Brandon is teasing Philip at this point. I, I mean... It's partially it's partially that for sure, but it's also very much in the same way of Leopold and Loeb. We're just like nobody noticed all of our petty theft and and vandalism and our arson. So I gotta figure out how to get noticed. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> exactly. So everybody's going to leave. Rupert's planning to leave too, and Mrs. Wilson's getting everybody's coats and hats and things like that. And she hands him a hat that has the initials D.K. in the inside for Donkey Kong. (laughs) And finally, he's here for you. He's the (laughs) last member of the D.K. crew. Of course, it's D.K. It's for David Kentley. Uh, Our Napoleons of crime have failed to remove the gaping clue. Uh, but Rupert gets his own hat and leaves looking suspicious. 
and saying, Hey, Mr. Kentley, why don't I help you with those books? Uh, so after everybody leaves, Brandon and Philip argue again. Philip is again only drunker, certain that they're going to get caught, and suddenly the phone rings. It's Rupert. He's saying, Actually, can I come back? Uh, I don't think you guys are nervous enough. <laughs> if if it was Columbo, he would have... Uh, one more thing. It's hilarious, too, because you see Philip pick up the phone and go, Hello? And then just run across the room to Brandon to say, He's coming back! He says he wants to come back! What should I do? And I can only picture James Stewart on the other end of the phone going like, Are you still there? Uh, I can hear your guys' conversation, you know. <laughs> uh, hello? Hello? Is anybody on the other side of this phone? That that got a, that got a little uh, Christopher Walken at the end. <laughs> it's so yeah. it's what we call back. the Liza Minnelli, James Stewart, Christopher Walken spectrum. <laughs> yeah, destroy binaries. Everybody is on this spectrum. <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty camp spectrum, to be fair. Yeah, well, one of them might be partially a murderer. Hey, he was there at the time. But good, the good news is that can be balanced out by the fact that one of the other two is a, a Yeti hunter. What? That means either okay. James Stewart or Liza Minnelli is a Yeti hunter? So, so, this is going to blow your mind. Oh, no. Oh, oh yeah. Is this oh. like Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter? No, even better. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, alright, quick sidebar. Back in the 1950s, I believe this is roughly when it took apart, uh, um, mm -hmm. suddenly the abominable, abominable snowman, or the yeti, was blowing up in popular mm -hmm. culture. It was kind of the uh, cryptozoology creature of the decade. Right, suddenly people were yeah, fascinated. Yeah, like, uh, like Killer Clowns five years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so all of these people were like going out to the Himalayas to try and find, is the Yeti real? You know, mm -hmm. can, can we discover it? Can we bring back specimens and blah, 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 blah. And this wealthy oil tycoon from Texas was like, I've heard that there is a monastery full of monks where they worship a yeti hand, right? It's one of their sacred objects. So I'm going to... the story is insane. I don't trust that you are not making this up minute by minute. I, 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 I am not making this up. So this, this oil tycoon is like, if I could get that yeti hand over to America, man, I would be the talk of the town and we'd be able to get it tested and blah, blah, blah. But... I mean, it was more so for the fame than it was for the actual science of it, of course. So, this oil tycoon asks his friend, James Stewart, to fly over. Well, I did think it was going to get there, because Liza Minnelli would have been like three at the time. Yeah, yeah. To So, he flew over to the Himalayas with his wife, went to this monastery... Uh -huh. And uh, James Stewart broke off one of the fingers of this Yeti hand, hid it away, 
and they smuggled it back to America in his wife's underwear section of her suitcase. With his thinking being, no right man would ever ask to go through a woman's underwear. <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah, so Jimmy Stewart, Yeti Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, what when, when they got it back, apparently they tested it and found out that it belonged to a bear or something. And so the whole thing yeah. was just a bit of a... Wah, wah. Right, but the fact that yeah, I like to think that those monks had like a dozen bare hands in the back room. Yeah, <laughs> but the fact that Jimmy Stewart is a yeti hunter <laughs> is just this wild, wild thing. Anyway, let's get back to Jimmy Stewart, murder hunter. <laughs> also, Jimmy Stewart's so tall and skinny that I'm just picturing him like seven feet tall going through the Himalayas like a cryptoid himself. <laughs> constantly bending down to avoid every doorway. <laughs> uh, so yes, Rupert has returned. He claims to have misplaced his cigarette case. Uh, he immediately puts it on the trunk with his hand to the camera so we can see he's lying. But he says, you know, while I'm here, can I have a drink? Let's just uh, chat a little bit more, boys. Make it a big drink. I'm going to settle in. Rupert is musing about David's disappearance, why he doesn't, uh, why he never showed up. And hey, we've been talking about perfect murders all night long. Um, wouldn't it be neat if somebody murdered David? <gasps> wow, like, that, that would be neat. what I would do if I'd murdered David. Oh, hi, O.J. Simpson. Didn't know you had also appeared in this film. Yeah, he goes all, if I did it, and this is another great use of the camera, where he says, you know, I'd invite him in, and I'd take his hat, and Philip would probably be playing the piano, and I'd take him uh, to a seat, and I'd give him a drink. And the camera's literally just, it's, it's almost like it's tracing invisible footsteps as it's going through how David would have moved through the apartment in his last yeah. months. Yeah, it's a truly gorgeous camera movement. It's I would also very confident because it's like everybody's off screen for most of it. You're literally just looking yeah. at the carpet and that sort of thing. That that didn't occur to me, but yeah, absolutely. You're you're relying on the audience's imagination of knowing Brandon and Philip, and understanding David to fill in these blank shots with your mental projection of these three characters. Meanwhile, Philip loses his last remaining grip on sanity and bursts into hysterical rambling. He's yelling, "Cat and mouse, cat and mouse!" Like. Come on, buddy. Just hold it together for 15 minutes. But on the other hand, we all been there. <laughs> um, Rupert notices that Brandon has a gun in his pocket. He put a gun in his pocket when Rupert came back up because he's like, fuck this perfect murder thing. I'm just, I fucked my way into this mess. I'm going to fuck my way out. Uh, but Rupert says, hey, you got a gun there. And Brandon's like, oh, yeah, this gun. I um, bring it to Connecticut because of all of the home invasions out there. Here, you can have it. It's totally normal. I'm, I'm completely calm. You're the one who seems weird right now. Uh, I'm not weird. You're weird. <laughs> and, uh, and Rupert's like, yeah, you know, 
Connecticut sounds great. Uh, wouldn't it be fun if I went out there with you guys? Seems like you'd have a really fun ride as he's slowly taking the rope out of his pocket. <laughs> now, okay. Leap of faith here. There's no way he actually knows that this is how they killed David or that they, in fact, killed David. He's just doing a really great guess here. This is not Sherlock Holmes. No, 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 no. This, There's no way this is Sherlock Holmes. He's just... He's caught on enough, and I think it's one of those, like, you know what? I know these boys well enough to know that Brandon probably did murder a dude and push Philip into helping. And, yeah, Philip doesn't help their case by immediately freaking out as soon as he sees the rope and yelling, He's got it! He's got it! <laughs> Philip, you weak piece of shit! <laughs> yeah, Brandon tries to talk him down, but he's way past that. And this is when he says, you know, Oh, I know that you wanted somebody to know the whole time because there's no point in committing a murder about how smart you are if nobody knows how smart you are. Uh... Philip grabs the gun. Rupert grabs the gun from him. Brandon insists Philip's a drunk and doesn't know what he's saying. But Rupert says, uh, listen, um, whatever happens, I'm going to look in this trunk right now. I know it's probably going to be in there. I really, really hope it's not. And we don't see what's in the trunk. We just see him back away horrified. I love this because at the same time, in this scene, the neon lights from a sign next door have turned on. Mm -hmm. And so it's. And they're flashing. Flashing red and green across. So when James Stewart opens the trunk, his face and the world goes green. Like, almost like he, he is sick. He is physically yeah. sickened. And the universe is. Uh, what, what's it called? Uh, pathetic irony. Fallacy. Right? That the world mm -hmm. is reflecting his sickness of just, oh my God. And this is where James Stewart is broken of his intellectual superiority claims of, oh yeah, we should be able to murder uh, someone. Because now that he's come face to face with it, he's, oh no, hold on a second. That's a sick fucking position to have because you two just murdered this guy to see if you could. The blinking neon in this is so good and so beautiful that every time I watch the movie, I'm expecting it to show up so much earlier than it does. It's only in something like the last two minutes of the movie or something like that. But it's just so good and, like you say, just makes them all look kind of ghastly and death masky. Mm hmm But also, if it was in the movie as much as I remember it, like, the movie would be unwatchable. <laughs> oh, God, yes. Uh, so yeah, while Brandon's going, I learned it from you, Dad. I learned it from you. And James Stewart is horrified that they would ever twist what he considers to be, in his mind at least, like pure philosophy. He wouldn't—he's free to have whatever thoughts he wants, but he would never actually do this horrific thing. And then he goes over to the window and he fires three shots out, and people hear the shots, and sirens start. And everybody's on their way. And they all just kind of sit down and wait for the authorities to arrive. And that's the movie. The final words of the film are spoken by Philip, who just says, 
they're coming. You had something that you said you were going to talk about James Stewart near the end here. Okay. So, because this is... We're filming this at the uh, May 19th. Just to give you a peek behind the curtain. James Stewart gave me very big Jordan Peterson vibes. Oh my... I... Okay. <laughs> he he looks like down to the costuming. He looks like Jordan Peterson in this. But I'm am both embarrassed that I didn't come up with it and I am so impressed by you. It's not just how he looks, but it's just this this mm-hmm. moral superiority, this idea that he's crafted of yeah, we should be able to murder. And finally when he's confronted with the thing that he's been talking about, his world crumbles around him, right? And I, so yeah. for anybody not paying attention to Jordan Peterson, A, good for you. <laughs> but yeah. B... Uh, would that we were all so lucky. Yeah, but B, th- this this week essentially, Jordan Peterson, out of the blue, decided to in- insult a woman who was being featured on the cover of a magazine. And it's a bigger black woman. Gorgeous. Absolutely stunning. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, but this he is... doesn't personally get a boner from her. And this is the decline of civilization or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. He's saying that the woke authoritarians are trying to push this on us. And he got read to fucking filth by basically <laughs> the entire Internet for good fucking reason. Yeah. And immediately he, he puts out this thing being like, well, finally, you guys have gotten what you wanted, and I'm just going to leave Twitter. Uh, no, please, come back. Oh, no, the world, whatever will we do without you? Oh, oh well, at least we got all those other bigots to bully off of something. Yeah. Uh, and Anyway, the point of that being like, yeah, James, James Stewart gave me big Jordan Peterson vibes of this intellectual superiority this like oh I understand morality in a way that you never could understand morality because you're less educated or liberal or whatever thing you want to slot into that position of and it's what is in the end a very shallow and old fashioned philosophy that hasn't actually been in style for several decades the the um what's the word i'm looking for uh the intellectual world has largely moved past it mm-hmm. it felt weirdly satisfying to see this nice kind of intellectual <laughs> comeuppance not just for the bad guys who get caught out on their shit mm-hmm. but also for kind of the guy who enabled them to perform these actions mm-hmm because he insists, you know, he would never do such a thing. He doesn't find any of this palatable. But at the same time, he's the one thrilling the dinner party earlier with tales about who he would murder and how. And, oh no, this person actually doesn't deserve to get murdered. They deserve to get tortured to death. I would like to see more of this in anything. Just like, yes, please. All right? He may not be the worst person, but can we knock him down a few pegs? Actually, I was watching North by Northwest uh, the other week, and the villain in it was called Ro Jogan? (laughs) Uh, Oh my god. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) Sam, 
Is it camp? Um, okay. The innuendos are all camp. Janet is camp. The aunt is camp. But the movie itself is not camp because I don't think Hitchcock would ever intend to create something camp. And if he accidentally did, he'd also bully it until it cried or got pecked by birds or yeah. something. So rope it rope isn't camp, but there's there's a couple camp things in there for you to enjoy along the way. Yeah, I I think I completely agree. I I see it as camp in the way that almost all old Hollywood is camp. Um and not just in a way that, oh, you know, it's dated and it seems so foreign to us now. But in terms of the artificiality and things like that, and the way that, you know, people speak in accents that we don't feel like anybody has nowadays and uses words that nobody uses nowadays. And that sort of thing. Chum. Chum. My good chum. Uh, Chum. You know, somebody compliments her hair and she says, well, I have no idea how I got it to look like this. It took simply hours. This movie by itself... um, I I texted you, I am shocked at how well this movie holds up. I might like it more now than when the first time I saw it. Yeah, it's definitely grown on me. Like I said, the the, the first time I saw this was in Film 1000 uh, at university. And while I enjoyed it, for sure, because I think it was one of the first Hitchcocks I had ever seen. It was either this or The Birds. You didn't see Psycho first? No, Psycho came later. I remember Mm -hmm. just being uh, upset by the birds because young me was like, but there's no explanation for why the birds are attacking. And now older me is just like, yeah, that's fine. (laughs) Older you is like, the world is chaos. You'll never get an explanation for anything. Yeah, yeah. We'll give you explanations sometimes. How about that, kid? (laughs) That's rope. It exists not on a binary, but it's camp-ish. Uh, so thank you for joining us today on our exploration of rope. Please subscribe on your podcaster of choice, leave a star rating, and review where you can, because it always helps us to find new people who may not know what their camp favorite is. Yes, and next week we're finally out of Pride, and that means we are now in Gay Wrath Month! Uh, <laughs> Yay! <laughs> if you weren't going to make that joke, I was going to jump in and tell Thank it. you. Thank you. Um, but first, I think it's it's a very important day for Canada. Why, it's Canada Day! <laughs> so. It's it's not an excitingly named day. They they did take the first draft on this one. This, this is very exciting because, uh, you know, as two Canadians... When we get to schedule Canadian things, ooh, we love it. So, we will be discussing Heritage Minutes. A concept that will probably seem strange to anyone outside the country. I don't think I've ever heard of another country doing something like this. But it was this this thing of, like, these minute, minute and a half well-produced videos that they'd show on television to educate Canadian kids about Canadian history, and it's fucking wild. We have so many things buried in our brains that we remember like burnt toast. Right? Like, I am really looking forward to discussing those with you. 
You, the audience, can continue the discussion on our Twitter and Instagram. I am at Hrys Indigo, all one word, R-H-Y-S, spelled the Welsh way. And I am at Sour Citrus Lady. You can follow the pod on at Is It Camp Pod. Until next week, wait an hour before swimming, watch out for snakes, and stay camp. Bye! A Yeti sound. Mrrr.